This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 103rd episode of the program. Today is Friday, July 14th, and before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank all of these kind individuals for deciding to join the independent progressive media revolution and support the Humanist Report, either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week we have Alex Talk, Ali Sizemar, Aubrey and Bobby Aldridge, Danny Lang, David Jean, Exes, Garrett Kennard, James Corrigan, James Manatalk, Leslie Andrews, Michael Daly, Michael O'Rourke, Patrick Tamboli, Sabrina Gover, and Titus Knox. So if you'd like to join these individuals and support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash humanistreport or you can go to humanistreport.com. But so long as you tune in and watch the show and share our videos, then that is all I could ever ask or hope for. So on today's episode, corporate Democrat Brad Sherman was confronted by constituents about his refusal to support single-payer health care. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai and Fox News teamed up to deceive the public. Washington Post published a false story about Bernie Sanders in an attempt to smear him yet again. Nina Turner was smeared by a Democratic Party strategist. Also in this episode, Bernie Sanders has a challenger in 2018. So I'll tell you about whether or not we should be worried. And additionally, I'll also talk about what we've accomplished during the internet-wide day of action. But first on this episode, I'll talk about Joe Manchin's interview with Jenk Uger of TYT. So let's go ahead and jump right into the news. This week, we had one of the most unlikely things happen in American politics. A corporate Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin specifically, went on TYT for an interview with Jenk Uger. Yes, that actually happened. So, first of all, I'll give him credit for going on a program that he knew would actually challenge him. But the question is, why would he do this? Why would someone who is clearly a corporate Democrat, go on a show that rails against corporatism and corruption all the time. Well, I'll give you uh, the reasons why in three words. Paula Jean Swearingen. She's his progressive challenger that's running a campaign akin to Bernie's, and considering that all 55 counties in West Virginia actually went to Bernie during the 2016 primaries, Joe Manchin knows that he's in big trouble, which is why he now wants senators to not campaign for primary challengers of other senators. Because let's be clear here, it's obvious that he's afraid that Bernie Sanders' endorsement of his progressive opponent could put her over the top. So he probably felt pressure to extend an olive branch to the progressives in West Virginia that he has continuously screwed over now that he as a progressive primary challenger. But throughout the course of the interview, it was very obvious that he was trying to pander to progressives. But what was strange about this interview wasn't that he came off as a disingenuous politician to me, because that was obvious and I expected that. But the responses, quite frankly, were borderline incoherent. Like, he said things that made no sense at all. For example, he tried to explain what's wrong with the Democratic Party, and his answer was... (laughs) <laughs> it was, we'll call it perplexing. And West Virginia believed the party that they had always associated with was the working person, helping the working person, helping a person that was down and out, trying to get back up and on their feet. Uh, now that party in 
the philosophy of Washington is it's become so politically correct that it's the party that prevents working people from working. The overreach, overregulation, uh, over intervening and interfering. Uh, it's just, I can just tell you about West Virginia. So the Democratic Party is hemorrhaging voters because they've become so politically correct that their political correctness is subsequently stopping people from working because of overregulation. Like his answer, it made no sense whatsoever. And this is because I think he started to try to diagnose the problems of the Democratic Party by trying to talk about political correctness. And then mid-sentence, he decided to change the topic to regulations. Um, but <laughs> political correctness and regulations aren't necessarily related. And furthermore, if you're going to talk about regulations or political correctness, that's not the real reason why voters feel disenfranchised with the Democratic Party. The reason why the Democratic Party continuously loses elections is because of their ongoing corporatism. And Joe Manchin is the main example of a corporate Democrat. So in this next clip, Cenk Uger explains to him that people are frustrated with the fact that Democratic Party establishment members, they'll take money from their donors and then in turn vote in a way that appeases their donors. And that's what's wrong with the party. So listen to Joe Manchin's answer when Cenk questions him about this. Well, let's go to some of those issues that you just mentioned there, overregulating. For example, you voted to repeal the stream protection rule. Um, and your top donor is First Energy uh, that wound up getting in some degree of trouble for uh, putting arsenic in a pond. It seems like they would benefit from the repeal of that regulation. So did that have anything to do with your vote? No, Jenks, I know it's hard to believe and I know it's hard for people to, I don't have any idea who gives me money. I don't solicit from the standpoint, you do this for me, quid pro quo, that's never been me. That's not my political mantra at all. So Senator Manchin, I wanna show you a graphic here, graphic one and then if we can two as well. But let's start with one. This is a list of your top donors. I, I, I thought you said that you don't, I, I understand that you said you don't do quid pro quo, that, that was clear. Yeah. But you know who your top donors are, right? I do not. You don't know who your top donors are? I do not, you're showing me something I've never seen. Okay, so this is from Open Secrets. Have, I know you have, Jenks, I know that is hard for anyone. To, to believe, I do not, I never have. And I've been around this process for a long time, never have. I had a person one time come to my office when I was Governor Jenks, and they come in, they said, uh, uh, they were asking for something, it didn't make any sense to me at all. And they said, well, you know, we had a big fundraiser for you. And this, I said, oh, you did? Well, I would have thought you were investing in good government. I guess we were both wrong. So tell me how much I'll make sure you get it back. So, all right, I believe that the audience out there, I gotta be honest with you, Senator, is going to be in a little bit of disbelief that- Well, there's still, there's still those of us who are involved in public service for the sake of serving the public. <laughs> <laughs> Why the fuck you lying? Why, Why you always lying? Why? Oh my God, stop fucking lying. Yeah, so that was just a bold-faced 
lie. I don't believe a single word that came out of his mouth, and this is because what he's saying flies in the face of all other reports we've heard about fundraising in Congress. So, for example, Representative David Jolly, who's a Republican, stated that their number one priority is fundraising. Now, this is what he was told upon his electoral victory, so it's not him saying that his priority is fundraising. It's him being told that that's his number one priority as a politician, and fundraising is so significant that politicians are now being referred referred to as telemarketers because they're on the phones basically all day soliciting for bribes. Did I say bribes? I meant donations. But regardless if he wants to acknowledge it or not, money in politics is a noxious virus. It's literally destroying our democracy. And that's a fact that is backed up by data. Average voters have a statistically insignificant say on policy when you compare them to the elites who have all the say and special interests who have all the say. But what's strange is that even though Joe Manchin states that he has no idea who his donors are and he never solicits for donations, he believes that money in politics is in fact a problem. Your small individual contributions make up only 1% of the money coming in from 2013 to 2018 into your campaigns. So 99% big money, 1% small money. So I wonder if you're for getting big money out of politics. It's a literal question, or do you think the current system is fine? Oh, the current system is not fine. The current system has destroyed the politics or the government as we know how we go through this process of electing people. The dark money coming in is horrible. That's not the money the candidates run. Forget about that, Jenks. That money is not going to make a difference in who wins and who loses. It's the dark money coming in that we have no control whatsoever. Uh, you know, Citizens United is absolutely destroying our country. And it should be outlawed. It should be done away with. It should have never come into being. So do you, do you think there should be public financing instead of private financing of elections? I tried public finance when I was governor of West Virginia and supported it. Absolutely. I surprisingly am finding myself in agreement with Joe Manchin on something. But my question to Joe is, if you are in favor of getting money out of politics, why haven't you sponsored a bill that moves us closer to publicly financed elections. In fact, you don't even have to sponsor a bill because in 2015, Senator Dick Durbin actually sponsored S-1538, which is the Fair Elections Now Act. Now, this bill isn't perfect, but it moves us closer towards encouraging citizens to donate by giving them reimbursements up to 50%, which should hopefully make politicians less reliant on big money donors. So since this bill exists, someone like Joe Manchin, who said, quote, Citizens United is absolutely destroying the country. Well, he's co-sponsored this bill, right? Well, when you look at the bill, it now has 27 co-sponsors, of course, including the likes of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. But we even see some corporate Democrats like Claire McCaskill who decided to co-sponsor this bill. But absent from this bill's list of co-sponsors is Senator Joe Manchin. So apparently, Joe Manchin doesn't actually care about getting money out of politics. Surprise, surprise. So what he said there was just an attempt to pander to progressives. And what's interesting to me is that if Joe Manchin doesn't know who any of his donors are and never solicits multinational corporations for bribes, I mean donations, excuse me, then wouldn't the same be true for his colleagues? So if money in politics isn't a problem when it comes to Joe Manchin, even though he votes with his donors most of the time, money in politics is still destroying democracy. Absolutely, he said, uh, when it comes to everyone else. So he's the only person in Congress who um, is not soliciting bribes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you
he's saying here is inherently contradicting what he wants us to believe. Your second largest donor, I know you say you don't look at the list, but it's my land. And and you've got to know about that one, right? Sure. <laughs> and well, and I know, I mean, I didn't know the amounts and honestly, I pay no attention, but my daughter being the CEO of Mylan, they've been very much involved. But Senator Manchin, you know, and I know your daughter's is here. I'm less concerned about that. I, I, you know, I look at the donor list. I am concerned about that. And sure. so, and you know, they increased the price of EpiPen by 600%. And everybody knows that. And that was a big story in the press. But the one that I really got my attention was when Health and Human Services said they defrauded American taxpayers to the tune of 1.27 billion dollars. So I'm wondering if you think that they should pay all of that money back because they did a settlement where they only paid back 400 some odd million. That leaves another 800 million dollars they could pay back, or whether the government should stop working with Mylan if they're, you know, given their record of defrauding the U.S. government. Well, I guess that'll be in the court system. I, you know, I don't know anything except I know that would be in the court system if that's the case. The federal government would take it. If a federal government takes a settlement, then they got to think that they didn't have much of a case. To take a step. I don't know enough about that, Jenks, to speak on that issue. I've tried to stay out of these issues because of our relationship. I love my daughter unconditionally. The most beautiful person with the biggest heart I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> so his daughter has a big heart. Oh, really? Is that so? Look, I understand that he's not going to speak negatively about his daughter, but since I have no emotional attachment to his daughter, I'll go ahead and do that for him. Your daughter is a bad person, and she's also a crook. She is the CEO of a company that defrauded American taxpayers, and she raised the prices of EpiPens by 600%. If you don't know what EpiPens are, they save lives. And your daughter decided that even though her decision to raise the prices of EpiPens by 600% might cause some people who need them to not be able to afford them, some of which will subsequently die as a result of her decision, she decided that she was going to do that anyway, so that way she could increase her company's profits and take home a nice bonus. Someone who does that doesn't have a big heart. Someone who does that is devoid of compassion. But this interview gets even more ridiculous because as you all know, as I stated at the beginning of the show, Joe Manchin encouraged his colleagues to sign a pledge to protect the status quo. But in this next clip here, Jenks calls him out and uh, he also uh, decides to dig his nose while Jenk is asking him the question. You got a, a mixed record there, to be honest, Senator Manchin in West Virginia too. I mean, in 96, when you were running a primary against Charlotte Pritt and she won, <laughs> saying to not support her and support Cecil Underwood, the Republican instead. So why did you do that and why did you lobby against a fellow Democratic colleague in West Virginia? It wasn't that, I'm a West Virginian first and I just wanted to have the best person I thought had the capacity and the capability of running the state. I'm sure. <laughs> and what's funny about his answer here is that he is literally conflating elections as being in a hostile work environment because since everyone in Congress is after each other's jobs and they're constantly trying to kick each other out of Congress, well, that makes being a congressman or a congresswoman um, tantamount to being in a hostile work environment. I'm not joking, he actually said this. I go to, to work every day in Washington in a hostile environment. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's very clear that to this point in the interview, his answers were not impressive at all. But when they got into policy, as you would have expected, things got even 
crazier. So let's go to some of the issues. Uh, Medicare for all uh, now backed by your colleague that you mentioned earlier, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Tammy Baldwin looks like she's gonna support us. Obviously Bernie Sanders on board mm -hmm. uh, and the list is growing, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. So uh, what's your position on Medicare for all? Uh, Medicare for all or the one payer system I think we're talking about. I think it should be debated. I think that we should have there should be a working group looking at all aspects of that. If we're trying to make the public believe that we can have a market-driven system in healthcare that we do today, right, wrong, or indifferent, it's market-driven, that you're gonna get the same services through a one-payer system, or you're gonna pay the same taxes that you're paying now, whatever you're paying is gonna be the same. I think that's not correct and not accurate, not an honest attempt at telling the people what it's gonna take in order for us to go that direction. So according to Joe Manchin, telling people that they're going to be paying the same amount of taxes for a single payer system, which none of us are actually contending that, that's something that is dishonest and inaccurate. But I'm glad that you brought up honesty and being accurate because for people like Joe Manchin who talk about the increase in taxes on you know a single payer system, which is likely to happen, he likes to conveniently ignore the fact that even though taxes may go up slightly as a result of ha us having a single payer system, well, what also happens is that we no longer have to pay our monthly insurance premiums and we no longer have to pay for expensive deductibles. So in result, we'll actually have more money in our pockets. So he doesn't like to talk about that, but yet he wants to call out our dishonesty when we bring up single payer. So if you want to talk about honesty and claim to care about honesty, why is it that you and your pro-corporate colleagues always conveniently leave out this part of the discussion? It's because you're the one that's being dishonest. Now, getting back to his answer, obviously he didn't answer the question and Jenk gave him even more attempts to try to give a coherent answer. And of course, um... The discussion went nowhere. So are you in favor of it or no? From, we have a little, we have this young boy, okay, this young child. I just was thinking of England right now in London, UK. This one child, right? They're deciding now whether that child gets services or not. I don't think that would be a decision we'd make in America. So you're not for Medicare for all. I'm just trying to understand. <laughs> I'm for, I'm looking at it. I want to do whatever is best. <laughs> What? We have this young boy, okay, this young child. I just was thinking of England right now in London, UK. This one child, right? They're deciding now whether that child gets services or not. Okay. <laughs> I want to read back that quote to try to make sense of it because I've got nothing. So he states, we have this young boy, this young child. I just was thinking of England right now in London, UK. Never heard of it. <laughs> I love how he's really he's clearly trying to stall here because he doesn't know where he's going with this because clearly he pulled it out of his ass but nonetheless he states this one child right they're deciding now whether this child gets service or not and i don't think that's a decision we'd make in america okay is this even a real story what child are you even talking about joe is this the child that you're talking about joe <laughs> is his name harry <laughs> So clearly, I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm sure that children in England aren't dying because they're being denied medical coverage. He must be thinking of America. But nonetheless, when he talks about wanting to have a debate about single payer, it's a cop-out, and that's an answer that won't suffice. So when somebody asks you about single payer, 
This is how you answer that question. Pay attention, Joe. So as you probably know, Bernie Sanders is going to be reintroducing a companion bill in the Senate to H.R. 676, which is basically a Medicare for all system. So if you are elected, would you support something like that so that way we can move towards a a Medicare for all type system? Absolutely. I think as much as West Virginia sacrificed, I think we do deserve health care for everybody. And of course, that was Paula Jean Swearingen, who is Joe Manchin's 2018 primary challenger. And we're kind of seeing this pattern here. The people who are in favor of single payer, they don't mince words. They just explicitly state their position. You ask whether or not they're in favor of single payer. And the first word that comes out of their mouth is absolutely. That's the type of answer that we're looking for. So clearly, Joe Manchin is not in favor of single payer. But knowing where the country is heading, he doesn't want to explicitly state that because that's an unpopular opinion to have. So instead, he does this tap dance and says, well, you know, I want to have a debate. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about this and that. And it's just a cop-out. You're not in favor of single-payer. But moving on to why he decided to vote to arm Saudi Arabia, this was his response. I asked a lot of questions on that. When I was on armed services for six years, I was concerned about absolutely because the so-called smart bombs weren't being used very smartly. And there was still collateral damage. We're all concerned about that. Now, I'm glad that he's in favor of limiting collateral damage. But we're not talking about collateral damage when it comes to Saudi Arabia's war crimes in Yemen. We're talking about them targeting civilians. They are targeting schools and hospitals. And there has been thousands of deaths of innocent civilians in Yemen. And he claims to care about the situation in Yemen in spite of the fact that he decided to arm Saudi Arabia. You're talking about Yemen and... and, uh, Yes. uh, And I... Horrible situation. Uh, I have access yeah. to these to these professionals, and you're talking about the best of the best, and they're giving you their information that they have, and you have I to dissect that. it and yeah. go with that. And that's what I did. So he knows about the human rights abuses that are being carried out in Yemen by Saudi Arabia, but yet because of these so-called experts who told him to vote to arm the Saudis, so that way they can use our weapons to do even more war crimes in Yemen. Uh, He decided to go with it anyway. So let me just give you a piece of advice, Joe. These so-called experts either should be fired from their job because they don't know about the atrocities that are being carried out with our weapons by Saudi Arabians, um, or they're just immoral and they do know what's going on. So either way, it's lose-lose when you listen to the experts. Now, moving on, Jeng asked him how he's going to appeal to Democrats, especially in West Virginia, who voted for Bernie Sanders in all 55 counties. And this is what he had to say about that. Bernie's not a Democrat. He won't register as a Democrat, okay? I respect Bernie and like Bernie, we have great conversations. Uh, but the facts are the facts. So to Joe Manchin, that D in front of someone's name is everything. It doesn't matter that Bernie Sanders votes with Democrats more than Joe Manchin does, but Bernie Sanders, he doesn't have a D in front of his name. He's not registered as a Democrat, so therefore, you know, he should have no say in the party. But the problem with this argument is that most people in the country are now registered as independents and they don't identify with one of the two parties. So that's only an argument that you use to delegitimize someone when you have nothing else to hold against them. But finally, to end the interview, Joe Manchin decided to give one last fuck you to progressives. And I guess when you talk about progressives, you're talking about the liberal wing that thinks that I should be more liberal and more, um, um, more liberal, if you will. Uh, I'm, I want to think I'm more responsible and more compassionate. So Joe Manchin isn't progressive because he wants people to think that he's more 
compassionate and responsible, as if progressives aren't actually compassionate and responsible. Now, I don't think that he intentionally meant for that to sound as condescending as it did, but the implication is hilarious. You're not responsible, nor are you compassionate, and neither is your daughter. So, it's very clear that Joe Manchin only went on the Young Turks because he wanted to try to repair his image among progressives, which is badly damaged. But unfortunately, I think that this interview actually brought him down even more in my book because now I know just how disingenuous he is. Because, you know, prior to him going on the Young Turks, he at least was seemingly a straight shooter because he said, look, I'm not changing. Vote me out and find somebody who can beat me. So we then took him up on this offer and Paula Jean Swearingen is now primarying him. And uh, now he's trying to lie and pander to us. Now he's worried about his prospects in the Senate. Well, it's too late for that. Now the people of West Virginia know that you don't care about them, that you're not looking out for them. So if they actually want someone who's going to represent their interests, then they're going to vote for Paula Jean Swearingen. And you absolutely should be worried, given that in your state, Democratic voters are overwhelmingly inclined to go for the progressive instead of the corporatist. So if you'd like to support the campaign of Paula Jean Swearingen, you can go to PaulaJean2018.com and donate to her so we can help kick Joe Manchin's ass out of Congress. Because what he did here, um, it's not helping his image. It's too late. You're, you're just too far gone. You're too corporatist. Register as a Republican and run again. But for now, uh, you've got to get out of Congress, Joe. Sorry. As you all know, there's currently an effort in this country by organizations like Our Revolution, Justice Democrats, Brand New Congress, to challenge incumbent Democrats that don't represent the voters. Now, the ultimate goal here is to replace those corporate Democrats with progressive Democrats who actually represent voters. However, we see a parallel effort being waged by Clinton supporters, or one Clinton supporter who's trying to replace the only senator in the country that actually does represent voters. So Bernie Sanders is being challenged in 2018 by an individual named John Svitaski. Now, here's what we know about John so far. He dedicated a large portion of his life to fighting homelessness, and he's also spent time converting buildings into homeless shelters, and NBC News referred to him as feisty. So that doesn't sound awful at this point, and given what we know about him, you'd think that he would make homelessness the cornerstone of his campaign, since he cares about it so much, but he's running on a purely anti-Bernie Sanders platform. So he's basically taking Hillary Clinton's I'm not Trump, vote for me strategy, and he's tweaking it so that way it's the I'm not Bernie, vote for me strategy. And he refers to Bernie Sanders as bank fraud Bernie, and he thinks that the FBI's investigation into Bernie Sanders' wife should disqualify him from office, although he was a vocal supporter of Hillary Clinton, who was under investigation during her presidential campaign, so I don't need to point out the hypocrisy there. But he also blames Bernie Sanders for Donald Trump, and he also lambasts Bernie Sanders for being a celebrity. And I mean, if Bernie Sanders is in fact a celebrity, then he's a celebrity exclusively because of the policy ideas that he's espousing. People like him 
because <laughs> he's standing up for the people. But nonetheless, um, you know, overall, John is running a strictly anti-Bernie Sanders campaign, which is interesting to me personally from a strategic standpoint, because we just saw another poll that showed Bernie Sanders is still the most popular politician in the country. To run on an anti-Bernie Sanders platform exclusively when he is the most popular politician in the country with the highest approval rating, it doesn't make any sense to me strategically at all. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. But nonetheless, let's see what NBC News had to say about John Svitosky. They state, he said that within hours of soft launching his campaign, he had already heard from thousands of people across the country who want to donate or volunteer. There's a lot of anger out there in my party against Bernie, Svitosky said. The political novice who clashed with Bernie Sanders over homelessness policy in Vermont in the past thinks Democrats need to stop coddling the senator. Quote, I believe that Bernie Sanders' entire involvement with the Democratic Party has been devastating, he said. I think it was a big mistake for the Democratic Party to let him in in the first place. And Svitosky said Vermont voters are concerned by the FBI investigation into the finances of Burlington College, a small school that Sanders' wife ran before it shut down under the weight of a bank loan she took out. It's a very serious investigation, said Svitosky, who graduated from the school. And Svitosky, who insists he's not running as a mere protest candidate, is largely unknown and has no major endorsements. He's backed by a small group called Organizing for Democrats, which has harshly criticized Sanders on social media and slammed the Democratic National Committee for working with him. And so far, at least, Svitosky said he hasn't heard any encouragement from Vermont Democratic officials who have gone from hating Sanders to tolerating him to embracing him in the years since he first ran for mayor of Burlington in 1980. So he maintains that he's not, in fact, running an anti-Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, but we don't know much about his policy positions. So, I mean, I I'm okay with you trying to challenge Bernie Sanders based on the policy issues, because Bernie Sanders isn't above criticism. I think that, just like everyone else, we should hold him accountable, but up until this point, you've done nothing but smear Bernie Sanders. I mean, if you look at his Twitter feed, he consistently talks smack about Bernie Sanders, and it's not based on policy substance. He's not trying to debate Bernie Sanders on the ideas. He's just latching on to these right-wing smear attempts at Bernie Sanders. And like other Clintonistas, he's also implying that Bernie Sanders, of course, is sexist, and he tweeted out a link to a blog that claims that Bernie Sanders has a terrible attitude towards women. So, like other Democrats, he's using identity politics to smear Bernie Sanders, and he's implying heavily that Bernie Sanders is a sexist, but, you know, I'm actually glad that John brought up identity politics, because I have some questions for John about identity politics for himself. So I'm wondering why, if he cares so much about women, why he's against abortion, because he actually made a post about his disagreement with Hillary Clinton on this particular issue. And also in 2016, he made overtly transphobic comments saying, quote, so if a lady boy in high school wants to shower with the girls, we'll just take his word for it. And in 2015, he stated that he disagrees with homosexuality, but of course he doesn't hate homosexuals because he takes one of those love the sinner, hate the sin approaches to homosexuality, which is inherently homophobic because you are operating from the 
premise that homosexuality is inherently sinful, which is offensive and just bigoted. It's an asshole thing to say, but nonetheless, he's against homosexuality, but don't worry, gay people. He supports you. He wouldn't fight against your rights. He just looks down upon you condescendingly so. He also defended Billy Graham, who is an anti-gay televangelist, when Graham spoke out against the quote, in-your-face portion of the gay rights movement. But that's not all. He also referred to Ben Carson, Herman Cain, and Condoleezza Rice as quote, Oreos. And when it comes to Condoleezza Rice, he actually stated that she, quote, should be arrested, tried fairly, then hung by the neck till she dies and rots in hell. And so shall it will be, for justice will be done when she stands before God and Jesus, unless she repents, confesses, turns and humbles herself before him. Now, he also doesn't believe that mental illness is a legitimate form of illness. So he's a mental illness truther. And he also thinks that access to mental health care doesn't matter. He's also an anti-vaxxer or at a minimum. He's skeptical towards vaccines. And if you want to know more about John, I'll provide you with a link to the Google Drive file that Reddit user Pantstatus0 created that has a lot of John's repulsive comments. But not all of what we know about John so far is bad because... Apparently, he's a big pothead, which I don't find as a negative. I think that's actually a positive because I know that he's going to be in favor of legalizing marijuana. And surprisingly enough, he also hates Debbie Wasserman Schultz, which makes no sense. Uh, and what's odd is that he actually agrees with Bernie Sanders' agenda, and he wanted Elizabeth Warren to run instead of Hillary Clinton. So politically, John seems to be all over the place. But here's what I'll say to John. Um, if you want to challenge Bernie Sanders... Again, I'm fine with that. I'm not someone who's going to argue that Bernie Sanders is above criticism. I don't think you're going to win. But the thing is that if you're going to challenge Bernie Sanders, why don't you address your policy disagreements with Bernie Sanders? Simply running on an I'm not Bernie vote for me platform isn't going to be conducive to your electoral success not just because it's not a good strategy, because obviously that didn't work out well for Hillary Clinton, but also because Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in the country. So not being Bernie Sanders exponentially disadvantages you. So if you want to take on Bernie, we'll come at him with the policy substance, but you have no chance of winning. No chance of winning because given your ideas, you are a less desirable candidate than Hillary Clinton even. So I don't think you have much of a chance. And I say bring it on if you want to challenge Bernie Sanders because you clearly have nothing to offer in terms of policy. But I mean, prove me wrong. But who am I kidding? Because obviously you are an unhinged Clintonista that has no chance of winning. So yeah, we have nothing to worry about. So today, as I record this video, the internet is currently buzzing about the news that Bernie Sanders will not be ruling out a 2020 presidential run. So this is what he had to say about 2020. Are you leaving 2020 on the table or are you taking it off the table? No, I'm not taking it off the table. I just have not made any decisions. And I think it's much too early. People right now, our job right now is to not only fight against this disastrous health care proposal, it is to take on all of Trump's reactionary proposals. He is a representative of the billionaire class. He's at war against the working class. We've got to raise the minimum wage right now. I'm working on that to 15 bucks an hour. Uh, we have got to make public colleges and universities tuition free. We've got to be aggressive on criminal justice reform. There's a whole lot of fights that we have to fight. It's just too early to be talking about an election three and a half years from now. So to me, he's not really saying anything new because right after the election, he said that he wouldn't rule out a run in 2020. Um, but I do believe Bernie Sanders will most likely run in 2020 because he'd be 
foolish not to considering he is the front runner currently. I know that the Democratic Party establishment doesn't want to hear that, but Bernie Sanders is currently the front runner. And regardless if they want to admit it or not, populism, left-wing populism specifically, is not just where the country is going, but where the rest of the world is going as well. So if Bernie Sanders decides to run, can he beat Donald Trump? I think he can. And, you know, there's a lot that will be happening uh, between now and 2020. But certainly, if Democrats want to win, they need to make sure that they don't try to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2020. And they need to have a fair and open primary where people don't feel disenfranchised if the individual that they like uh, doesn't win elections. I mean, they need to feel that the process was fair. And certainly, it wasn't fair. So, Tom Perez needs to take note and realize that everything that Debbie Wasserman Schultz did in 2016, he should do the opposite of her. So yeah, you know, this isn't surprising to me. Uh, I do think Bernie Sanders will run, and I don't really want to focus too much on 2020. But nonetheless, I think that in this political climate, we need all the good news that we can get because I, I get a lot of people that reach out to me and say that, you know, they're demoralized. They feel as though the situation is hopeless in America, but it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. We're currently, we're we're in a shitty time, let's be honest. You know, American politics is toxic right now. It causes depression. A lot of people are checking out of politics, but know that things will get better and then they'll get bad again and then they'll get better. I mean, that's just the way that politics works, but certainly in the end, we're going to win because we have the momentum, we have the enthusiasm, and certainly Bernie Sanders, if he wants to run, I think there's a very good chance that he will be the 46th president of the United States. So, you know, let's not dwell on 2020, but just know that there's some good news and good things are coming in the future. It's not all doom and gloom. Brad Sherman is a Democrat representing California's 30th district, and during a recent town hall, an activist named Lauren Steiner showed up to this event, and she wanted to ask him why he hasn't co-sponsored H.R. 676, which, as you all know, is a single-payer health care bill that more than half of House Democrats have supported, excluding Brad Sherman. So before this event began, she approached him, and you could tell that he didn't want anything to do with her. No. You're going to want this question. I don't care. I'm my office. i got to prepare for this. Real quickly, when you post, when you post, I'm just going to this last month. I want to take a shot. Co-sponsor John Conyer's single-payer bill. I will address that if it comes up. So to me, that was incredibly rude. Uh, he clearly tried to brush her off. He didn't want anything to do with her. He was short with her, and she tried to ask him the question anyway. He refused to answer. But later on during the event, to Brad Sherman's dismay, well, according to my understanding, they were doing a lottery to determine who would be able to ask questions to him, and Lauren Steiner or someone from her group got chosen. So she got to actually ask the question, but this time it wasn't just in front of a couple of people. She asked him this question in front of 500 people, and this was his response. And focus on issues that concern the American people, like affordable health care. And will you please co-sponsor John Conyers' single-payer Medicare for All bill? Like 50% of Democrats in Congress have, and the vast majority of California Democratic Congress members have. Thank you. Great question. 88 percent of Americans and 80 percent of Democrats want single payer. I think we're going. I think we're going to get single payer. 
and I think when we do, I think it will work well. But right now, I've got the entire Republican caucus chanting, repeal and replace Obamacare. I am not anxious to be quoted as, and, say, and, and every point at me and say, he wants to repeal and replace Obamacare. I want to build, I, want, I will have to check some with, with some of my colleagues on this. I think the next step is a public option. That, that is the next step, and that's where we should have gone in 2008 and 2009 and 2010. As a practical matter, the Republican-led Congress is not going to adopt single-payer this year. What we need is tactics that at least prevent Trump from taking 24 million people off the rolls. And that, every single Democrat stood firm, voted against their effort to repeal and replace. So let me just say that I absolutely love Lauren Steiner. Shout out to her if she's watching this video because she is constantly putting pressure on politicians and whenever she shows up to these town hall events, she comes armed with the facts and she doesn't let them evade the question and obfuscate and lie. Now, when she asked whether or not he'd co-sponsor John Conyers' single-payer bill, the room applauded, which isn't surprising seeing that more than 70% of Democrats support single-payer. But of course, he gave the same tired answer that all Democrats continue to use. We can't focus on single-payer because of Trump care and the Republicans that they want to repeal the Affordable Care Act and yada, yada, yada. Look, I'm sick of hearing this same excuse. It's tiring. We're, we're tired of this excuse. It doesn't resonate with us when one Democrat says it, and it's not becoming more persuasive as you all continue to use the same tired excuse. Come up with something new. Actually tell us why you won't support single-payer. And look, I'm not alone here. Lauren Steiner, she's been to a ton of these town hall events, and clearly she's also sick of it, as were the people in the room. So she followed up. And other people decided to ask him again, why haven't you co-sponsored HR 676? Whether you would uh, be co-sponsoring HR 242, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Absolutely. I am co-sponsor of a bill that would do just that. And absolutely on any public option entity negotiating the prices. As to um, as to single payer, my, my, my thinking on that is tactical. What's the best way to get there? And if I become convinced that the best way to get there is to co-sponsor a bill now, I see a, a, a sign back there. I don't want to see all the signs, but one says ACA, fix it, don't nix it. And for now, that seems to be the better tactic. It's not uh, if we were to have single payer, that would be a replacement for, and some would say a improved replacement for, uh, and I think we will eventually get there. 
uh, what is the right tactic to get there at a time when it's also the Republicans who are saying, get rid of Obamacare, is something I need to apprise talking to some of my colleagues and seeing what is the best tactic. But uh, I, I will tell you this, no tactic is gonna get us there in the next 12 months. Right now, we're on defense, fighting to keep uh, the Republicans from taking 24 million people out of health care. So absolutely nothing he said there is substantive. Uh, he said nothing meaningful to progressives. And he keeps saying how sure he is that we'll get a single-payer system one day, yet he is acting as an obstacle to single-payer. We can't get a single-payer system if Democrats are too afraid to stand up and support a bill that would move us closer to single-payer. So my question is, are you too much of a coward to co-sponsor H.R. 676? Or is it the case that the $21,000 you took from health industry super PACs influenced your decision at all, Brad? So you know the drill. We're going to call him up and ask him. His number is Brad Sherman. My name is Mike Figueredo, and I noticed that on Bill HR 676, you are one of the few Democrats that has not co-sponsored this bill. Now, as you know, HR 676 would make single-payer health care a reality in America. So I'm wondering if the $21,000 that you took from health industry super PACs had any influence on your decision. Are you too afraid to co-sponsor HR 676 because you're unwilling to take a stand? Or is it that you've been bought off by health industry PACs? Now, I know that you're currently preoccupied with trying to impeach Donald Trump, but regardless if that effort will be successful or not, people across the country will still be dying due to a lack of health insurance because of spineless Democrats such as yourself who refuse to take a stand for a bill that would literally save lives. So I am asking if you are not co-sponsoring HR 676 because you're corrupt and been bought off, and if that's not the case, then prove me wrong. Co-sponsor HR 676. You simply sign your name on the bill. It will take no more than 10 seconds, and you can prove to progressives and the country that you're on the right side of history because simply defending the Affordable Care Act is not enough. That left millions of people out. We still need health care for everyone because it's a basic human right. So which side are you on? The side of your health industry donors or on the side of the American people? Actually take a stand for once, Brad Sherman, because you're not brave challenging Donald Trump. What makes you brave is challenging your donors 
who tried to buy you off and it seems as though they successfully bought you off. Take a stand, have a spine, and co-sponsor HR 676. Thank you. So we need to make sure that we call and we keep calling and we keep the pressure on these corporate Democrats because we can't stop until they all fall and putting pressure on them is the way to do it. So give them a call again, 202-225-5911. That's his Washington DC office and tell him to co-sponsor HR 676. Unless you've been living under a rock, then you now know about the July 12th Internet-Wide Day of Action, where some of the largest companies on the internet, such as Amazon, Reddit, Netflix, Pornhub, among others, they all came together to send a message to the FCC. Leave net neutrality in place. Leave the internet alone. We don't want you messing with the current net neutrality regulations because currently net neutrality is regulated as a utility under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934. And that makes it so that way large internet service providers cannot throttle websites that don't pay them ransoms. It also stops them from censoring content of websites that they don't like. So this was really important. And this event was organized by Fight for the Future, and the ultimate goal was to raise awareness about net neutrality in hopes that people would speak out and send a message to the FCC. And we got some of the preliminary results of the protest, and I have to say it was incredibly encouraging uh, to see everyone speak out. I really felt a little bit optimistic about the internet for the first time in months, so on July 12th, there were nearly 3.5 million emails sent to Congress, which is just insane. Now, when it comes to comments submitted to the FCC itself, there were more than 1.7 million new comments, which is more than were submitted on the last internet-wide day of action. So that brings the total amount of comments that the FCC has received with respect to this issue up to nearly 7 million. Now, the most surprising to me, more than 100,000 calls were made to Congress. That's really amazing. Now, more than 80 subreddits with the combined 160 million subscribers informed readers about the attack on net neutrality. And finally, 485 YouTubers, including yours truly, with a combined subscriber base of 202 million spoke out against the uh, repeal of net neutrality. And there's still 35 days left to comment, so there's going to be a lot more where that came from. So to everyone that participated in the Day of Action, really take a moment and feel proud at what you did. You are fighting the fight to save the internet and save net neutrality. And you honestly, you should feel proud of what you did. And for those of you that didn't participate or couldn't participate, uh, there's still time. Again, 35 days are left, so you can submit a complaint to the FCC, you can tweet to Ajit Pai, you can call the FCC, you can call your congressman or congresswoman. Uh, there's a lot of things that you can still do to make your voice heard, and it's really important that you do that because, as I've talked about on the show before, millions of fake comments that are being submitted by bots on behalf of the industry 
are trying to drown out our voices. And what we did with the internet-wide day of action is we tried to overpower these bots and make our voices louder than these bots. But certainly, a really crucial component is leaving the comfort of our homes and protesting if we're able to do so. So if you can go to the FCC and protest in front of the FCC headquarters, you're doing a great service, not just for yourself, but for all of us. Um, so we have to still do what we can. We can't just settle with the internet-wide day of action being the last effort to speak out. We have to continue to make noise about net neutrality and talk about net neutrality and share videos that inform us about net neutrality. Any infographics that you can find, any memes that might convey the importance of net neutrality in a humorous way, anything you could basically do will be greatly valuable uh, to all of us in this fight because we need net neutrality if we want the internet to continue thriving if we want democracy to still exist in america because the internet really is the last beacon of democracy in this country and if we allow internet service providers like comcast and verizon to throttle the bandwidth of websites that they don't like or the you know throttle the bandwidth and internet speeds of their competitors that's not just bad for competition and innovation. That's bad for democracy because they could shut down sites like thehumanistreport.com and say, you know, this guy's speaking out too much um, against us. He's talking about Bernie Sanders and we don't want him to talk about Bernie Sanders. So let's throttle the bandwidth to his website and basically bring the speeds to his site to a crawl unless he pays us a ransom, which obviously <laughs> I'm not going to be able to pay any ransom that they impose. So this is really crucial. We have to make sure that we protect net neutrality and the fight isn't over so please make your voice heard you can find out more at battleforthenet.com they made it really easy for you to file a complaint and make your voice heard over the course of the last couple of weeks i've told you about the fbi's ongoing investigation into jane sanders and how basically it's a political witch hunt that was initiated by the Republican equivalent of David Brock. Now, when you read most of the articles about it, most outlets have been surprisingly objective and they state all the facts about the case. And ultimately, they conclude that nothing will likely come of this. However, there's the Washington Post, which is an outlet that is notorious for trying to smear Bernie Sanders. And they decided to opportunistically publish a story surrounding the investigation. And shortly after it was published, the main premise of the article was disproven. So they published an article talking about how prosecutors in this case wanted to subpoena Jane before a grand jury and potentially even Bernie, but the prosecutor only decided to request documents instead. The problem with that is it's completely false. The grand jury never made a decision between documents and Jane. They only had asked for the documents to begin with. So, in their editor's note, they state, an earlier version of this story quoted James C. Foley Jr., an attorney for an official with a Vermont bonding agency, as saying that his client was initially called to appear before a grand jury, but that prosecutors later agreed that documents alone would be sufficient. Foley clarified late Monday, however, that the grand jury subpoena required only that documents be turned over. The story has been updated. So, if Jane Sanders isn't actually being called to appear before a grand jury or if they hadn't even considered that they wanted to call her to have her appear before the grand jury then they really have no story here so after they had to issue that retraction this is the new news that uh they were left with 
They report a federal investigation of a land deal led by Jane Sanders, the wife and political advisor of Senator Bernie Sanders, has accelerated in recent months, with prosecutors hauling off more than a dozen boxes of records from the Vermont College she once ran and calling a state official to provide evidence for a grand jury, according to interviews and documents. Half a dozen people said in interviews in recent days that they had been contacted by the FBI or federal prosecutors and former college trustees told the Washington Post that attorneys for Jane Sanders had interviewed them to learn what potential witnesses might tell the government. So the big news is that the grand jury is requesting documents. That's not news. That's not a story. In any probe, of course it's the case that they're going to need documents. But nonetheless, the title of the article is Federal Prosecutors Step Up the Probe because they want you to think that this is getting more serious. And while the case is actually serious, nobody is surprised that the grand jury is requesting documents. Are you kidding me? So they use this case as an opportunity to bash Bernie Sanders, but they couldn't even bother to verify the facts and the most in important detail, which is crucial, that they were basing their article on. So that's just one of the many embarrassments that the Washington Post has had to suffer through lately. Uh, and it's not just that, you know, the retraction itself is a problem, but there's more to this article that I take issue with. So they don't talk about the entirety of the issue. So they conveniently leave out really important aspects of the story. So they mention Brady Tonzing twice, who is the individual who initiated this lawsuit. He petitioned the Justice Department to investigate Jane Sanders, but they made zero mentions about the role of Brady Tonzing in the Vermont Republican Party and how he's accused countless public officials of corruption under frivolous and false pretenses. That's a huge component of the story because it sheds light on the motivations of the individual who initiated this investigation in the first place. How could you leave out that component of the story? It's huge. It's everything. But it's the Washington Post. So we really shouldn't be surprised because they're not necessarily motivated by the facts as much as they're motivated in their agenda, and currently their agenda is bashing Bernie Sanders at every chance they get. And, you know, if they see something like this FBI investigation, of course, they're going to be opportunistic and jump on any new detail that seems to incriminate Bernie Sanders. But they're willing to do so to the detriment of themselves because they can't even get their facts straight. And again, they've done this with Russia stories. They've done this multiple times. They repeatedly mess up, but yet they claim, and they're honestly, they're touted as one of the best journalistic outlets in the country when the Washington Post has gone to shit. And ironically, at the top of their page, they state, democracy dies in darkness. Well, you're not helping with that effort by spreading propaganda at the behest of the political establishment. This isn't about Jane Sanders committing bank fraud or being corrupt. This is about a political smear merchant for the Republican Party who, while claiming to care about ethics, was the campaign chair of the most unethical candidate in American history, Donald Trump, who said that we should kill the families of ISIS in Middle Eastern countries. So he doesn't care about ethics. He cares about smearing Bernie Sanders because he doesn't like the fact that Bernie Sanders doesn't receive as much scrutiny as other politicians. Well, it's because Bernie Sanders isn't corrupt, unlike the vast majority of politicians in Washington, D.C. Um, so they would also not receive scrutiny if they were not corrupt themselves. So look, this whole thing with the Washington Post is just one of the many reasons why they should be embarrassed, but they're not because the Washington Post is shameless. Again, it's not about the news, it's about their agenda, which is the case with most corporate-controlled news organizations. 
As you all know, Nina Turner recently became the president of Our Revolution, which to me was just excellent news because I don't think there's anybody that deserves that job more so than Nina Turner. So uh, as we would have expected, this generated a ton of press coverage and Nina Turner gave a bunch of different interviews to different publications. One of them was The Nation, and she was interviewed by Collier Meyerson. Now, this interview prompted a Democratic strategist named Peter Rosenstein to write this article for the Huffington Post titled, Nina Turner, Our Revolution President, From Democrat to Irrational. Now, judging by the title alone, you know that this isn't going to be an attack based on policy substance. Um, it's just a political hatchet job. So... Why does this individual think that Nina Turner, of all people, is irrational? Well, he argues upon taking over as president of Our Revolution, Bernie Sanders' organization, Nina Turner was interviewed by Collier Meyerson and asked, how will Our Revolution relate to the DNC, the DCCC, the DSCC, that kind of establishment that so many activists and politicians, including you, have frequently criticized? Her response was, I don't think it is our job nor our obligation to fit in. It's their job to fit in with us. That mirrors how Senator Bernie Sanders has handled his entire political career. It is also why he has few real accomplishments to his name after over 40 years in office, which is bullshit, but nonetheless, he continues by saying it may behoove Miss Turner to take a few moments on this July 4th to reread our Constitution, realize that to make progress on her goals, that may require some compromise. That is how the Founding Fathers set up our government. Meyerson went on to ask, and how will our revolution relate to progressives within government who didn't back Bernie, like Sherrod Brown and Tammy Baldwin, if they go on to seek re-election. Her response is an indication of what is clearly self-destructive about both Nina Turner and our revolution. She said about these two successful and respected progressives, if they want our revolution's endorsement, they will seek it like everybody else, and so they gotta start with the local affiliates, and if the local affiliates say that this is the person that we want to back, then there it is. There it is. So our revolution isn't about supporting progressives or helping people learn how the system works so they can move forward progressive change. Rather, it is about catering to groups of local activists, often self-indulgent, to the point of taking action that actually hurts the causes they believe in. To bring about change, one has to understand the system. Understanding how Congress works, like it or not, when it comes to Congress, there are only two parties, Democrat and Republican. If you don't work to support one of them, you are helping the other. We saw that in the last presidential election, and we saw it in 2000 when we ended up with George W. Bush. One must wonder what turned Nina Turner from a rational Democrat who won her legislative seat running as a Democrat in Ohio to the irrational person she appears to be today. One is forced to assume what Miss Turner is now doing is more self-aggrandizement and less about getting anything done. I met Nina Turner once at a Ready for Hillary event in New York City. She spoke passionately about Hillary and why she would make a great president. She is a good speaker and excited her audience. The next time I had heard of her, she had gone through some personal epiphany and became a rabid anti-Hillary Sanders supporter. It might be in the Clinton campaign, she would have been one of thousands, and with the Sanders campaign, she was special. So to me, that article is insufferable, and when it comes to some of the more bolder claims that this so-called strategist is making, I mean, he's he's talking a lot here. He's saying, one, that Nina Turner is irrational, that she's an opportunist, uh, she only endorsed Bernie Sanders instead of Hillary Clinton, so that way she would stand out more and it would bolster her 
her own career. He's saying that she's not politically astute, that she's unreasonable and unwilling to compromise. And in a portion I didn't read to you, he even implies that her decision to have our revolution endorse all progressives, including Green Party and independent political candidates, is deceptive since our revolution's donors are supporting an organization that's backing candidates that won't win. And finally, he criticized the grassroots and said that they are sometimes a little bit self-indulgent. I mean, has there ever been a more arrogant and smugly written article ever? Because I don't know if I've read one before. He's basically raking Nina Turner over the coals and basically saying she's a piece of shit because he disagrees with her strategically. Well, just because you disagree with her doesn't mean that you're better than Nina Turner. In fact, I agree with Nina Turner. And just because you and I are in disagreement doesn't mean that you're better than me. You may be a political strategist, uh, you may be an elite, but that doesn't make you better because your opinion differs from us. In fact, if anything, our opinion should hold more weight because grassroots activism is where the heart of the Democratic Party really is, and we are more in tune with ordinary Americans. You are in tune with the elites in Washington, D.C., which is why uh, you don't know what you're talking about, and you have your head up the asses of people like Hillary Clinton. Now, he's implying here that Nina Turner, I mean, she is such a horrible person because she doesn't want to compromise, and she's backing candidates that aren't Democrats, and she's dividing progressives and helping Republicans and yada, yada, yada. So if you're a strategist, then riddle me this. Wouldn't you say that it's more strategically bereft for the party to abandon a huge swath of voters? And now you're leaving that portion of the electorate, almost half of the Democratic Party, open for someone like the Green Party or the People's Party or some other new party to swoop in and pick up those voters. That is something that I would like to call strategic incompetence, but you would already know this if you're a Democratic Party strategist, right? And also, he talks about compromise and Nina Turner's unwillingness to compromise. And although that word itself isn't inherently dirty, when Democrats say it, it's a bad word. And this is because when Democrats talk about compromise, they're not really talking about compromise in the actual definition sense of the word. They're talking about rolling over and dying and giving the Republicans everything that they want. So we often hear about how um, Bill Clinton, he compromised with Republicans in the 90s, and by compromise, he just signed their Republican welfare into law. Uh, We talk about how Barack Obama compromised with Republicans with the Affordable Care Act when he just gave them the policy that they petitioned for that was endorsed by the Heritage Foundation in the 90s. So I mean, Democrats don't know how to compromise. They only know how to roll over and die. And furthermore, one thing that you need to get through your thick skull and everyone else in Washington, D.C. needs to realize, maybe you could tell them since you're a strategist, is that we don't have to compromise because our issues, the issues we are championing, have majoritarian support. That means that a majority of the country supports the ideas that we are talking about. Single-payer healthcare, raising the minimum wage, ending U.S. imperialism. We are the ones with the winning argument and the American people back us. We don't have to compromise on that. Because if you're compromising on something that the American people doesn't want, you're only giving in to large multinational corporations who are buying off Republicans and Democrats. So why would we compromise with them? That's not going to happen. If you think we're unreasonable for our unwillingness to compromise, then too bad. We are going to be a pain in the ass of the Democratic Party. And if you don't like that, then that's too bad. Maybe Democrats shouldn't have been so corrupt that they lost nearly a thousand seats in legislatures across the country. So since you guys are incompetent, 
Now it's our turn to take over the party and run Washington, D.C. and do it our way. So uh, you can think Nina Turner is irrational for that, but unfortunately for you, Nina Turner is a populist with a winning message and a winning strategy. You're not a very good strategist if you think that what she's doing is bad for the party, because if anything, she's trying to push the party to the left. And if they want to win, this is what they've got to do. So you can think she's, a, she's an irrational person. You can smear her. It doesn't matter. Nina Turner will be on the right side of history. Nearly two months ago, protesters went to the neighborhood of FCC Chairman Ajit Pai and they distributed flyers with his name on it, warning his neighbors about his pro-corporate anti-internet agenda. Now, back at the time after this occurred, Ajit Pai went on Fox News and they did a propaganda piece for him and defended him against the protesters. And even though this segment is relatively dated now, when I saw this recently, I was appalled because there were so many lies that were told in this short segment that I couldn't not address it. So we're going to go ahead and watch the segment and we'll address some of these lies that were told. Well, the battle over net neutrality is back in the spotlight this week as the FCC prepares to vote on loosening regulations. Many on the left are up in arms, but a new poll this morning reveals that 51% of Americans believe the internet should not be regulated by the government. Yeah, one of the last uh, free spaces on earth. So why are leftist groups protesting the chairman in his own neighborhood, in his backyard, in his front yard, with more protests planned outside his home today? The chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, Ajit Pai, joins us now. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, so first, these protests. They're outside your house, in your neighborhood, plastering flyers on your, on your neighbor's uh, doors as well. Why, why are they doing this? Well, I think this is an important issue and people feel very passionately about it. And so this particular group uh, felt the need to let my neighbors know what they thought as well. And look, it's a free country, but at the end of the day, I'm going to stay focused on the facts and try to be as civil as I can be to every American who's involved in the debate. They've been putting door hangers on your neighbors' houses with uh, things that say, have you seen this man? Have any neighbors come up to you about this? A few of them have, and uh, they got a laugh out of it. So, yeah, we actually have seen him. We just talked to him the other day as he was mowing uh, the lawn, and uh, you know, they've had a pretty good sense of humor about it. And uh, whether they agree or not on any particular FCC issue, they've been really supportive. And so I really am grateful to them for their friendship and uh, their uh, wisdom. Well, you're not getting a lot of friendship from leftists like John Oliver, the, the, the uh, disciple of the former Daily Show. Uh, he's every week uh, bringing up this issue, telling people to go to the, the website, go, go to your home. Uh, what's it like, and complain, what's it like to be under the spotlight like that? Uh, it's a change of pace, uh, to be sure, but at the end of the day, I really want to uh, make sure that every American who has an interest in this issue uh, has his or her say, and that's the uh, basic purpose of the FCC, is to open a public conversation, and uh, if they want to participate in the conversation, we're more than happy to engage them. Well, it seems like the left, and, and not necessarily just those on the left, but uh, small business owners and others have kind of maybe owned this conversation and forcing maybe the right to play defense on this. Their argument is that hey, if there's a small store, a small business, up against some big business, they should have an equal right to internet access, just like the big business does, so that their speeds aren't slower, they have access to the same things. How do you battle, are you up against that argument, and is that a fair assessment? 
Well, I think the basic framing of this issue is wrong. The essential question is, how do you want the Internet to be governed? Do you want it to be heavily regulated by government lawyers as a slow-moving utility? Or do you want light-touch regulation so that we get more investment in the networks, more innovation online, more consumers benefiting uh, from the digital economy? I tend to take the latter view, as did President Clinton, as did President Bush, as did President Obama during the first six years of his tenure. And so all we're proposing to do is return to that light-touch, market-based regulation that has served consumers in the across the country so well for almost 20 years. If you had a situation where, here's the argument, right, that you have, for instance, Comcast, which owns Hulu, which owns NBC, right, and one night you're surfing through the internet and you want to watch Hulu and it loads like that because Comcast owns it and it makes it fast. You want to jump over to Netflix, they don't own it, it's slow. If something like that were to happen, where would the FCC come down? Two different points. First and foremost, that does not happen, has not happened in the digital economy that we've had. Second of all, if it did happen, if we saw an example of any kind of anti-competitive conduct, that is squarely something that the antitrust authorities at the Federal Trade Commission or the Justice Department mm. are empowered to take action on. And that's the last thing we want to see, of course, right. is any competitive conduct. Sure. And, of course, in a capitalist country, you can uh, change the channel or go to a different service if you want to in a free economy. Correct. So I don't even know where to start, but let's let's take it from the top. So at the very start of the segment, they begin lying immediately. So they cite a poll from the morning consult showing that 51% of Americans don't want the internet to be regulated by the government. But this is very disingenuous because this is just one of many questions that were asked in the same poll that aim to gauge overall support of net neutrality. And this specific question doesn't use the words net neutrality. And you see, when I decided to pull up this poll that Fox News decided to cite, they conveniently left out the most important portion of the poll. So respondents were asked, quote, As you may know, net neutrality is a set of rules which say internet service providers such as Comcast, Time Warner, AT&T, and Verizon cannot block, throttle, or prioritize certain content on the internet. Knowing this, do you support or oppose net neutrality? Now, using this wording, cueing respondents into what you mean by regulation, now... 61% state that they support net neutrality, and only 18% oppose it, while 21% don't know. Fox News, however, they decided to not talk about that portion of the poll, so Fox News here is deliberately trying to deceive their viewers and lie about public support for net neutrality, which is overwhelming, and, you know, if they want to talk about polls, I'm glad they want to talk about polls, because I've got some polls to cite myself. So, a new Politico and Morning Consult poll from June shows that 60% of Americans support net neutrality. A poll by Mozilla found that 76% of Americans support net neutrality, and this includes 81% of Democrats and 73% of Republicans. The University of Delaware Center for Political Communication found that 81% of people oppose internet service providers charging websites for faster speeds and 83% of self-identified conservative voters support net neutrality according to a poll conducted by the Internet Freedom Business Alliance. And I can go on and on, but I won't because the point is that Americans overwhelmingly reject Ajit Pai's pro-corporate agenda, but Fox News doesn't want you to think that what Ajit Pai is doing is overwhelmingly unpopular. They only want to cite one portion of a poll that 
contradicts what we're saying about net neutrality. So when it comes to Ajit Pai, he says, I want to make sure that every American that has an interest in this issue has his or her say. Is that so? Because that sounds nice, but for some reason, there are millions of fake comments being submitted on behalf of the industry, and you're playing dumb, you're refusing to investigate or even acknowledge that this is a problem, and it's creating this narrative that all these comments are legitimate and people don't actually support net neutrality, which contradicts numerous polls that show that we overwhelmingly support net neutrality. So do you actually care about what we think about the issue, Ajit Pai, or are you just saying that to do damage control? Obviously, it's the latter. Now, the other problem that I have is that he frames this as an issue of government intrusion into the internet, but the alternative that he's advocating for is complete corporate control of the internet, which will be horrible for competition and innovation. And we got a taste of that in 2014 when Comcast tried to kill off Netflix by throttling their streaming speeds, but they ultimately stopped doing so once Netflix paid them a ransom. But Ajit Pai implies that we need to return to the, quote, light touch way of regulating the internet where the government doesn't impede on the internet but he's implying that in 2014 when the FCC voted to uh, regulate the internet as a utility under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934, that that somehow changed the way that the government regulates the internet, but it just solidified the way that the internet has been all along. It protected net neutrality. He's the one that's trying to change it, yet he's arguing that in 2014 the FCC voted to change it. No, you're the one who's trying to change the internet. The internet is currently free and open, and if you don't believe me, go to any website you want to. If you can access any website site you want to, the internet is still free and open. So he's the one who's trying to change the way the internet functions. Now the host asked him what the FCC would do if internet service providers actually tried to throttle the bandwidth of their competitors. And Ajit Pai then said that first and foremost, that does not happen, has not happened in the digital economy that we've had. And he concludes by saying that anti-competitive conduct is the last thing we hope to see. This not only did happen, because we have the obvious Netflix example that I cited, but it's also currently happening even with net neutrality on the books because internet service providers like Verizon are pushing the limits of net neutrality. And they're arguably just crossing the line because when it comes to data caps, companies like Verizon are excluding their video applications from data caps, which is a way to kill off their competition like Netflix by encouraging their customers to watch their video streaming service over Netflix's. Now, shout out to Philip DeFranco for reporting on this because prior to his report on what these uh, ISPs are currently trying to do, I actually didn't know about it. So obviously they're going to jump at the opportunity opportunity to screw us over because they're already trying to do that with the current net neutrality rules that we already have. They are inherently anti-consumer. And another problem is that Comcast thought that they would join the fun and talk about how they support the internet-wide day of action when they've lobbied against it more than most companies. And also at the top of that list is Verizon and they're trying to maintain that, you know, by lobbying for uh, a repeal of these current net neutrality protections, we're not trying to take away internet freedom, 
And you can see them try to argue for this with the propaganda video that they decided to post to YouTube. Is the FCC going to kill what we know as the open internet rules or net neutrality? The FCC is not talking about killing the net neutrality rules. And in fact, not we nor any other ISP are asking them to kill the open internet rules. Now, this entire video is the definition of propaganda and people are onto their bullshit. Hence why they decided to disable comments and make the video unlisted after the like to dislike ratio probably made them shit themselves. So understand that when Ajit Pai states that anti-consumer conduct has not and will never happen, he's lying to you. He's just straight up lying to you. Understand where he's coming from. He served as legal counsel to Verizon, who's lobbying to roll back net neutrality regulations. And of course, when he leaves the FCC, you can bet your ass that they'll offer him his job back again, and they'll probably give him a really nice bonus on top of that. So what he's doing here is the agenda of the industry he came from, because he knows that it's going to pay off big time for him when he leaves the FCC. Now, the last thing I want to talk about in this video is how the Fox News host decided to be the biggest shill for the industry. He stated, and of course, you know, in a capitalist country, you can change the channel or go to a different service if you want to in a free economy. The problem is that this capitalist utopia that you're describing doesn't actually fucking exist because you're lucky to have more than one option when it comes to internet service providers. So if you don't like what they're doing, if you think that their behavior is too anti-consumer, you have no choice. You're stuck with them. So Good job being a useful idiot for the industry, but I mean, you're doing exactly what you were hired to do. Play dumb and be a shill for the industry. So this whole segment, it, it was just riddled with factual errors, brazen lies, and just bullshit. It was a propaganda piece for the FCC and by proxy, a propaganda piece um, for Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T. But we already know that Fox News is not news, and people who watch Fox News are less informed than people who watch no news. So this isn't surprising, but nonetheless, I couldn't allow their lies to go unfact-checked because what they said here was just over-the-top bullshit. If you like The Humanist Report and you like Reddit, then I've got some great news for you. The Humanist Report podcast is now on Reddit, so you can go on the Humanist Report subreddit linked down below, uh, and you can join the discussion where we talk about the podcast itself, we talk about other progressive podcasts like Secular Talk and Jimmy Dore, uh, and we also share articles that concern the show and include topics that I talk about on the show, uh, and I have to send a huge shout out to user Tissue Boxes of Fun who took the liberty to create a subreddit because I hadn't done this prior, but uh, yeah, let's show them some love, uh, and the goal here is to get to 1,000 subscribers, and then I will do an AMA on this subreddit. So I think that this will be a really great way to uh, kind of interact with other like-minded people. And if this is anything like the Patreon chats that we have monthly, then the Humanist Report community is going to, uh, <laughs> they're going to draw you in because we, we have a blast sometimes. They are lit. Head on over to the Humanist Report subreddit um, and, and show some support to Tissue Boxes of Fun and all the users there because it's a great subreddit. But I'm biased, so I can't really, I can't comment on that objectively speaking. Well, that's the show for today. I want to thank you all for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode, thank you so much for watching. I want to also send a huge shout out to all of our newest viewers and newest subscribers. And a big thank you, as usual, to the Patreon patrons and PayPal supporters who help us to not just survive 
but to thrive as well. So thank you all so much for watching The Humanist Report and listening to The Humanist Report on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'll see you guys next week. Take care.